Hey everyone, welcome to Embers in the Dark, a podcast that seeks to open up scripture as God's revealed word and um, seek truth, understand truth as he's revealed it, and then apply it to our lives. We'll have sermons and conversations and and a few other different things that just seek to open up and expound on God's word, uh, and again, just to, to bring it into application into our lives. Enjoy. All right. Um, so I've been wrestling through Mark uh, chapter five a lot this week, um, but we're actually going to be in Judges. So turn to, turn to Judges chapter seventeen. And the reason we're in Judges is because as I've been wrestling through Mark, what I've been wrestling through is there's so much to to talk about. There's so much to learn. For all of us, there's so much to know, and there's so much at the core that we're missing, and I, I, I don't want to stay on the surface for too long, and so Mark's kind of on the surface, and so we'll come back to Mark chapter 5 next week, but we really need to go into Judges 17. Uh, to kind of get at the core of some of the issues that we're facing before going into Mark chapter 5. So Judges 17. Judges is the seventh book just after Joshua. And so the overall context is um, you get the the five books of the Pentateuch and, and Abraham is called and then Moses shows up and leads all the people out of Egypt into almost into the promised land. Joshua takes over, leads them into the promised land. Uh, And then all of these judges are set up for Israel. They don't have a king yet. Saul comes after, but they don't. So they don't have a king. They don't have a prophet like Moses. So they've got all these judges. And if you've read the book of Judges, what it is is just a picture of the failure of men and women over and over and over again. Just the failure of men and women. And so in Judges 17, we have this, um, almost this commentary, this verse, it's, it's chapter uh, 17, verse 6, that just says, in, the, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. And that's kind of the commentary, you see that a couple times in Judges, this commentary of the situation. And so what we'll do is we'll read 17, verses 1 to 13, and then we'll go into 18 for a little bit, just for some extra context. Judges 17. I'll read chapter 17 and then a few uh, verses from chapter 18 as well. What I'll do then is I'll outline and give us the background of the passage and then we'll apply it. So Judges 17 verses 1 to 13. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith 
who made, a car, who made it into a carved image and a metal image, and it was in the house of Micah. And the man, Micah, had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons, who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, well, stay with me and be to me a father and be to me a priest. And I will give you 10 pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. And then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. So Micah is a religious guy. And he really wants to have church. He really wants to have church and worship God, so he's created a shrine in his house. He's built a little place of worship. He's made some articles of worship. He's set them up. And he's even ordained his son to be his priest. So he's got it set up, and he's got it all sorted out. He's got himself a church. He's got the items he needs for a religious service. He's got his pastor to preside over that religious service. And as we see, Micah's got it made. He can now fire his son. He can let his son go. He can let the one he's had do his religious services for a bit because he's got himself a real priest, an honest-to-goodness Levite. And so Micah bargains with him. He offers him an annual salary of 10 silver pieces, his clothes, and his living. His living means his food and his rent. And so he's got his food and his rent and a, a suit of clothing to wear and then some extra money for some personal items. And the Levite was happy to accept that offer. And so Micah told his son, his, his current performer of religious duties, that he didn't need him because now he's got this ordained Levite. And we see that Micah was quite pleased with this arrangement from verse 13. Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. So let's look at chapter 18, verses 1 to 6, and then we'll go to verses 14 to 20. Again, we see in chapter 1, there was no king in Israel. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshetol, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. And they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? And what is your business here? And he said to them, This is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. 
And they said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, Go in peace, the journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Let's go ahead to verses 14 to 20. Then the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that in these houses there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image and a metal image? Now, therefore, consider what you will do. It's talking about Micah's house. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, what are you doing? And they responded to him. They said, keep quiet, put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be the priest to the house of one man or to be the priest to a tribe and a clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. And so here now we have the Danites, a tribe of Israel, who previously has failed in their attempts to take the land of inheritance for themselves. So if you remember at the end, Joshua says, here are your lands of inheritance, go and take them. Separate into your tribes and go and take them from the people. The Lord will give you victory. And the Danites have failed to do so. They've failed to take it from the Amorites. And so they sent out a band of 600 warriors who then sent out a band of five scouts roaming the lands looking for some peaceful people to overthrow. As we see, they're going to go into Laish, but first they come upon Micah's dwelling, a single dwelling, and they decide to steal his priest. As, you see, as, as, you've, as we've read, the 600 warriors with their weapons at the ready stand at the gate to Micah's house with the priest. And the five go in and take all of their religious items. So they come and decide to steal Micah's priest so that they can have their religious needs fulfilled during their conquest. So that's the story. That's this little section of judges that we've run into. It's not a part of the actual history of Israel's judges. It's kind of a commentary, again, of what's going on. There's no king in Israel, and everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. It's a gathering together of some accounts that enable us to see the social condition of the period. Again, it's a short cultural commentary. So what we have is Micah, who desires religious ceremony, but he also desires to get along as best he can in the world. So he takes a little bit of the world, and he takes a little bit of God, and kind of puts them together, mixes them up. He takes what he thinks is best, from his own understanding of who God is, but then he takes a bunch of stuff from the world and throws it all together to get what he can. He adds graven images or idols. He actually, his mom has them made for their little shrine. He basically looked around the culture and said, well, this is what they're doing and this is what they're doing. And so I'll take 
what I know about God and what I should do. And then I'll take all these other things as well and bring them in so I can get it all together. Then he added a priest. He added a pastor. A Levite shows up and signs on to be his priest, taking himself, his wages, his clothes, his room and board. The Levite had decided he was worth that much, so he decided he would stay there and enter into the mixture of idolatry that was taking place in Micah's house. He shows up and looks and says, yeah, this is good for me. You'll pay me. You'll give me my food and my clothing and et cetera, et cetera. And, and this is fine. I'll walk in and I'll, and I'll just give you your religious services, even though you've got all of these idols set up. That's fine because you're paying me. Now that we have the, the people of Dan who come along, again, they're supposed to have driven out the Amorites in order to take their proper land of inheritance, but the Amorites proved too difficult. And again, they decide to go into Laish to take over it, and they steal Micah's priest to do so. They figured that since they had been encouraged and found the land through that priest, through the advice of the Levite, they decided that they wanted to have his assistance. They said, well, this Levite has helped us decide where to go, said that the Lord's going to go with us, and so in order to have our religious ceremony, we'll take this Levite with us. Again, it's a bit hard on Micah, but the Levite was able to adjust himself. He was flexible to the situation. He could accommodate himself and say, well, it's much better for me to go and, and whore out my services to this larger group rather than just this small little group here. There's wisdom there. It's better for me to go and serve a big group of people rather than just serve this little group of people. And so he justifies himself and goes with the Danites. Again, that's the story. And we've got two main scenes. One where Micah decides he needs to have church and he needs to have a pastor or a priest so that the Lord would do him good. I need to have church and I need to have a priest. Therefore, the Lord will prosper me. And the next we see that the Levite sells his religious services first to a small congregation and then to a larger one and he was glad. Verse 20, the priest's heart was glad. So how do we take this? That's the story, that's the meaning, that's the understanding. How do we take this? How do we apply it to our day? I'll look at two things. First, pragmatism. Second, humanism. First, I'll I'll talk a little bit about pragmatism and how that relates to utilitarian religion and a useful God. Pragmatism means if it works, it's good. If it works, it's true. If it succeeds, it's good. That's the definition. That's the standard. And so the test of all practices, the test of all principles, the test of truth, quote unquote truth, is does it work? For example, if we want to have church, if we want to fill the church, and if we fill the church by proclaiming a soft or even a false gospel, that's good. We've accomplished our goal of filling the church. Even though we've proclaimed a soft or a false gospel, we've fulfilled our duty by filling the church, and therefore we have success. Even if we ignore what Scripture says. That's pragmatism. 
And if we look at scripture, we see that the greatest failures of the age are those, according to the standard of the world, the greatest failures of the age are the ones God honored most. Look at Noah. We look at Jeremiah. We even look at Jesus. If we judge Christ, our Lord, by the standard of the world, he was a great failure. The question then comes to this. What is the standard of success? By what standard are we going to judge our lives as Christians? And by what standard are we going to judge the ministry of the church? And so the question you are going to have to ask yourself is, is God a means or is God an end? Is God a means or is he an end? Are we going to be Micahs who wish to use God as a conduit for our own good? Or are we going to be Levites who serve God for 10 shekels in a shirt? And so we need to ask ourselves at the very outset of our Christian pilgrimage and continue to ask ourselves on our Christian walk, is God a means or is he an end? With pragmatism in our mind, let's look at humanism. And as I look around this world and see and meet and talk to people, I would argue that the philosophy that most infiltrates our minds is humanism. The reason we hold to pragmatism is because we hold first to humanism. Humanism is defined as a philosophy that declares that the end of all being is the happiness of man. The end of all being, the purpose of our lives is happiness or satisfaction or fulfillment. I'll use all three words in the same way. But humanism says the reason for our existence is our own happiness or satisfaction or fulfillment. According to humanism, then, salvation is simply a matter of getting all the happiness you can out of life. Salvation is being fulfilled. What does this mean? Well, when you look at 1930s Germany and the influence of Nietzsche, Nietzsche said that the only true satisfaction in life, the only true fulfillment is in life is in having power. Satisfaction is found in power. In order to be happy or satisfied or fulfilled, you need to have power. In order to do that, you have to have more power than somebody else. And so you take somebody like Adolf Hitler, who is influenced by the philosophy of Nietzsche, and we'll say the Nazi party, the, the Nazi socialist party, this philosophy would create the Nazis and Hitler. They took Nietzsche's philosophy as their operating principle. And they said, we are destined to rule the world. We are destined to increase our power and to have power over everyone else. And this is how we will find satisfaction. That didn't work out. But then somebody else turns around and says, well, the end of being is happiness, but happiness doesn't come from authority or power over people. Rather, happiness comes from sensual experience. And so we get to the 1960s in the U.S. when existentialism and sexuality run rampant because happiness is found in self, giving you what you want. And what you want is glandular excitement that was the sexual revolution the hippie revolution in the 60s in the u.s and it continues to show up in the gross sensuality of our time 
Since man is essentially a glandular animal whose highest moments of ecstasy come from the exercise of those glands, salvation is simply finding the most pleasure you can out of life. And that effect of humanism then is that the end of all being is the satisfaction or the fulfillment of self through such experiences. And when we look out on the world objectively, what do we see? We see that the same thing has always been. Cultural lawlessness, where every person does that which is right in his own eyes. Since the dawn of creation of man, we have done that which is right in our own eyes. And the excuse for it is that now it is done for the fulfillment of self. Everything is done in the name of happiness. You hear the term or the phrase, as long as it makes you happy. Do it as long as it makes you happy. If you do it and you are not happy, then don't do it. Humanism has permeated everything and it's come into the church. The whole purpose of life is narcissistic. The purpose of life is the exaltation of self, the self's happiness. That is what we live by. And again, the church is not immune from this. So what's happened? Well, if we go back into the beginning of the 19th century, the church divided into two groups, the liberals and the fundamentalists. The biggest debate between the liberals and the fundamentalists focused on the Bible. The liberals rejected the Bible as the authoritative word of God, and the fundamentalists affirmed it. Well, what happened was that the liberals accepted the philosophy of humanism to the point where they wanted people in the church. And so they tried to find relevance by saying something like this to the generation. We don't know if there's a heaven. We don't know if there's a hell. But we do know that you've got to live for 80 years. We know there's a great deal of benefit from poetry, from high thoughts, from noble aspirations. Therefore, it's important for you to come to church on Sunday so that we can read some poetry, so that we can give you some little adages and axioms and give you some rules to live by. We can't say anything about what's going to happen when you die, but we'll tell you this. If you'll come every week and pay your tithe and stay and help and serve, we'll put springs on your wagon and your trip will be more comfortable. We can't guarantee anything about what's going to happen when you die, but we'll say if you come along with us, we'll make you happier when you're alive. And so the essence of liberalism was, let's put a little bit of sugar in the bitter coffee of life and sweeten it up for a time. Let us give you some springs for your wagon so that the, the journey isn't so bumpy. The other group, the fundamentalists, took issue, rightly, with the liberals and affirmed the word of God as the word of God and authoritative and said things like, we believe in the inspiration of the Bible, we believe in the deity of Jesus Christ, we believe in hell, we believe in heaven, we believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. However, these assertions, after a few generations, these assertions turned into another assertion that was, this is what makes us a Christian. The liberals are over here. They're not Christian. This is what makes us a Christian. Believe in these things and you will be a Christian. And so the next generation came along and said, this is how we become Christians. 
believe in these four things. Believe in the Bible. Believe in the deity of Christ. Believe in the inspiration. Believe in the death and resurrection. Believe in these things and you will be a Christian. And the result of that was that in order to be a Christian, the whole plan of salvation was to give intellectual assent to a few statements of doctrine. And a person was considered a Christian because he could say, "Uh uh-huh, at a few points. If he knew where to say, "Uh uh-huh, someone would pat him on the back, shake his hand, smile broadly, and say, brother, you're saved. Does that sound familiar? It's basically the sinner's prayer. Say yes to these questions. Repeat this after me, and you're saved. You've got your ticket. You've got your tick in the box. You've got your ticket to heaven, and you're good to go. What was the result? The result was that salvation was nothing more than an assent to a series of questions. But remember, the atmosphere is that, of, is that of humanism. And humanism says that the chief end of being is the happiness of man. And because it just permeates everything, it's permeated the church. And so the end of salvation that was accomplished by saying yes to a few statements of doctrine, the end of that salvation was the happiness and the satisfaction of man. What's the point? The point is, is that the one group, the liberals said that the purpose of religion was to make man happy while he's alive. But the other group had strayed into error as well because what they said was that the purpose of religion was to make man happy when he dies. But again, the purpose of all religion is the happiness of man. The liberals said by social change, we're going to do away with slums, we're going to do away with substance abuse, we're going to do away with poverty... We're going to promote a social gospel and we're going to make heaven on earth and we're going to make you happy while you're alive. And the other group said, accept Jesus so you can go to heaven. You don't want to go to that stinky, nasty, old, dirty hell down there when you die. Accept Jesus so you can go to heaven. You want to be happy when you die, so accept Jesus so that you can go to heaven. And there's a way that you can give an invitation to sinners that sounds just like a plot to rob a gas station in order to get something for nothing, in order to get what you want by exploiting someone else. And we look at judges, and what do we have? We have Micah, who wants to have church, and he wants to have a priest or a pastor And he wants to have prayer. And he wants to have devotion because I know the Lord will do me good. And this is selfishness. This is sin. And the pastor, the Levite, comes along and falls in with it. Why? Because he wants a place. He wants ten shekels and his shirt and his food. And so in order that Micah can have what he wants and the Levite can have what he wants, they sell out God for 10 shekels in a shirt. And what is it? Well, in essence, it's this, that the end of all being is the happiness of man. 
And this system of happiness has been covered over with evangelical terms and biblical doctrine until God reigns in heaven for the happiness of man. Jesus Christ was incarnate for the happiness of man. And all the angels and everything exists in the universe for the happiness of man. And this is unchristian. Did God intend to make man happy? Yes. But as a byproduct and not a prime product. Our happiness is a byproduct, not the prime product. And this is humanism. And it has permeated our churches. It has permeated our lives. We are rank with it. We must ask ourselves then, what is the philosophy of missions? What is the philosophy of evangelism? What is the philosophy of a Christian? When I went to Africa, I was a new Christian. All I had was my Bible and the naivete that came with my immaturity. I watched a lot of terrible things happen. Watched a lot of people die for no reason. I watched a lot of people die who over in the West would have had no problem living. And I thought that the gospel was the answer for the pains and the problems of these people. That what they needed was Jesus and all their problems would go away. All their pains, all their suffering would go away and their lives would improve. I haven't said it, but if you think about what I just said, it's humanism. It's me trying to use the provisions of Jesus Christ as a means to improve upon the human conditions of suffering and misery. I thought if th- that if these people just had Jesus, their lives would be better. Their lives would be improved. They wouldn't have to suffer so much. I was peddling the gospel as a treatment for the ailments of sinners rather than as an antidote for the poison that is in their veins. And so as I read my Bible, I was confused about all this stuff, all this stuff that I was seeing and hearing in churches. So I came home and went off to Bible school and got more confused. I was finding that what I was reading in the Bible wasn't being talked about on campus, wasn't being talked about in the classrooms. What I had seen in Africa was right here in small town Saskatchewan, large town Ontario and BC. Humanism was running rampant through the Christian church. I was at school hearing about a false God who loved me so much he wanted me to be happy and healthy and comfortable. I was in churches hearing about the same thing, hearing about a false God who wanted me to find satisfaction in life. And that if I just believed in him, he would give it to me. But this false God was not the same Lord of hosts that I was reading about in scripture. Well, what happened? First first summer home from school on my living room floor with my Bible open, God met me in his word. He began to tear through the overlay of humanism that had permeated my life. The veneer was wiped aside and the gospel became real and powerful and not about me, but about God. The selfishness that ran like poison through my veins 
was purged. Face down on the floor, I faced God honestly with what was going on in my heart. And I didn't hear him, but it seemed like he said to me, the judge of all the earth will do right. The heathen are lost. And they're going to go to hell. Not because they haven't heard the gospel. They're going to go to hell because they are sinners who love their sin. And because they deserve it. But I didn't send you out into the world for them. I sent you out there for me. I did not send you out there for their sakes. And again, I didn't hear it, but it was clear. Like the echo of truth of the ages finding its way into my heart. Said, I didn't send you to Africa for the sake of the heathen. I sent you to Africa for my sake. They deserve hell. But I love them. And I endured the agonies of hell for them. I didn't send you out there for them. I sent you out there for me. Do I not deserve the reward of my suffering? Do I not deserve those for whom I died? And it reversed it all. It changed it all and righted it all. And no longer was I there for the sake of the heathen. But I was there for the Savior who endured the agonies of hell for them. They didn't deserve him, but he deserved them because he died for them. And my eyes were opened, and no longer was I a Levite working for Micah and 10 shekels in a shirt, but I was serving the living God. Do you see the difference? Humanism says the end of all being is the happiness of man. But Christianity, true Christianity, says the end of all being is the glory of God. And the difference is this. The gospel is not about trying to convince a good man that he needs the care of a loving God. It is not about trying to convince a not-so-bad man that he's in trouble with a bad God. The gospel of Jesus Christ is about trying to convince bad men that they deserve the wrath and anger of a good God. There is only one reason that we repent. That is because we are sinners and Jesus Christ deserves the worship and the adoration and the love and the obedience of our hearts. Not because he'll go to heaven. If the main reason you repented was so that you could go to heaven, you are nothing but a Micah who has his religion because you know the Lord will do you good. If the main reason you repented was so you could go to heaven, you're nothing but a Levite serving for 10 shekels in a shirt. The reason for you to go to the cross isn't that you're going to get victory. It's that you, it's that you're going, or that you're going to have joy. You will, but that's not the reason. 
The reason for you to go to the cross isn't so that you go to heaven. You will get there. What I am saying is that if it is victory or joy or heaven that are the reasons for you to come to the cross, you are using God and the provisions of Jesus Christ as a means for your own end. Let me say it another way. If you want God for some reason other than God himself, you are using him as a means to achieve what you want. Whatever that is, joy, comfort, escape, peace. If you want God for some reason other than God himself, you are using him as a means to achieve your own end. If I were to say to you, come to be saved so you can go to heaven, come to the cross so that you can have joy, come for the fullness of the Spirit so that you can be satisfied, I would be falling into the trap of humanism. If I were to say to you, come to Jesus so that your life can be better and you can get out of your bad habits, I would be proclaiming a gospel of humanism. And so I'm going to say to you, if you are without Christ, you come to Christ and you serve him as long as you live, whether you go to hell at the end of the way, because he is worthy. Because he is worthy. I say, come to the cross for Christ himself and forgiveness and joy and peace will follow. Come to the cross for Christ himself. Seek first his kingdom and then all of these things will be added to you. Let me conclude. As I was fighting through this, this crisis in my early years as a Christian, wrestling with the differences between what I was reading in Scripture and what I was hearing in the churches that I went to, I met a, a wise pastor who knew my angst. And knowing my angst, he asked me an important question. And I'll, I want to ask it to you. I want you to contemplate it and mull it over, think it through. Search hard for the true answer in your own hearts and minds. Search hard for the answer that lies beneath the deceitful veneer of self-righteousness. Search hard for the answer that lies beneath the idea that I did this and therefore I'm going to heaven. I prayed a prayer. I said yes to these things. I did these things and therefore the Lord is going to save me. Go deep and probe Here's the question. Would you still want to go to heaven if God was not there? Would you still want to go to heaven if God were not there? What this question does, what it helps me to do, is to work out the idols in our lives. Work out the idols in my life. Am I an idolater? My heart is an idol factory, turning and churning 24-7. And this question forces me to look long and hard at myself. Look and see if there's false gods that I have set up. This question helps us to see God where he belongs. As the end instead of the means. 
as the center and the focus of everything. Helps to see him there instead of where we so often put him, which is as a means to our own ends, where we are the center and the focus of everything. So we ask this question to ask ourselves, will God be a means to our own ends or will he be the end itself, regardless of where that leaves us? Let us be done once and for all with a utilitarian Christianity that makes God a means instead of the glorious end that he is. Let us repent and tear down our altars and stop using our services for the glorification of self. Let us resign. Let us tell Micah we're through. Let's tell the tribe of Dan we're through. We will no longer use God as a means to our own ends. And let us come and cast ourselves at the feet of the nail-pierced Son of God and tell him that we're going to obey him and love him and serve him as long as we live, regardless of what happens to us because he is worthy, not because of what we think we'll get out of it. Because he is worthy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that cuts us asunder sharper than any two-edged sword. Help us, Lord, to see you as you are. Not be all else to us, save that thou art. Help us to see you as you are. Discipline us as our Father. Draw us in closer to Christ. Help us to see the truth. Search our hearts, Lord, so that we may know. Peel back these veneers, these overlays of our pragmatism, of our humanism, of any other isms that we hold to. Grant us the courage and the strength and the the wisdom to get beyond it. Help us not to be afraid of the light that comes and shines in our darkness. We love you and we thank you, Lord, for who you are. We thank you for the blood of Christ. In his name we come before you and for the sake of your glory we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Embers in the Dark. Enjoy your week.